What do you get if you add together Wes Anderson, Rene Magritte, and divide that by Federico Fellini? Then minus Irving Penn. You get the photographer Rodney Smith, according to Grayson Carter, previous editor of Vanity Fair. Now there's a new book celebrating his life and work, A Leap of Faith, curated by Paul Martineau. Smith's early work in Israel and Connecticut was inflected by the Dust Bowl-era influence of Walker Evans. Indeed, this work might seem unrecognisable from his whimsical set-piece fashion photography for Vanity Fair and Ralph Lauren that defined his later career. But as this new book shows, whatever his subject, Smith never deferred from that distinct blend of spontaneity and precision and enduring curiosity of the human gaze. Today, we're joined by Leslie Smolin, Smith's widow and creative partner to discuss this new book. They met in the 90s when she was the director, still the director of Carbone Smolin Agency, and she accompanied and discussed with Rodney many of his later projects. She's now the director of Rodney's Estate, and she joins me from New York to discuss this new book. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for joining me. Hey, hey, Liam. Thanks so much for having me. Bit of a departure today uh, for regular listeners. Uh, we're talking about photography. We're talking about the publication of a photography book. A uh, big passion of mine, uh, but I'm super excited to be joined uh, by you, Leslie. And I think that's where we should start, uh, to be honest. I think we should start with you uh, and your relationship with uh, Rodney. Absolutely. He, he's my favorite subject always. Um, <laughs> and he was such an interesting person that I wish you and all your listeners had had the chance to meet him. So it's, it's really fun to talk about him. I, I met him in 1987. I was running my own design firm, as you mentioned, Carbone Smolin. And we'd been in business for about 10 years, my partner, Ken Carbone, and I. And Ronnie called to introduce himself and show me his portfolio. I asked him to drop it off. And he said, oh, I don't do that. And uh, he said that he also did not live in New York. So I said, well, you know, if you're ever in New York City and if I, I'm ever free, I'd love to see you. Uh, but of course, I to myself said that would never happen because I was much too self-important and busy. Um, it just wouldn't happen. So just as I was about to hang up the phone, he mentioned there was a house for sale down the street. And uh, surprisingly, he knew I was house hunting in Connecticut where he lived. Um, so I said, OK, I'll come visit you. Uh, when I met him several weeks later, I was stunned not only by his work, but by the portfolio itself. He presented me with a series of beautifully printed silver gelatin prints mounted on archival board. They were slip sheeted with vellum. He wore white cotton gloves and he showed them to me very slowly, like one picture at a time. Um, this is the way an archivist would. And it was clear that Rodney and his work were totally different in every way. He was he was the consummate artist. Um, and I fell in love with his talent way before I fell in love with the man himself. Oh, I'm it's, sure that many listeners of the Rhythm Pages who are partners, if as a billion as their kind of uh, other partners, they'd be very happy with that. But <laughs> um, but yeah, you've kind of got to the heart of it. And you must have Working at the agency, you must have seen, like you said, you saw a lot of photographers, uh, a lot of artists, and I'm sure you've met a lot of artists sort of living and working in uh, New York. But what was it about Rodney's work that, that really captivated you? You said you fell in love with the work before the man. He showed me these soul-searching portraits of farmers and migrants, pictures he had taken during a fellowship to Israel um, and while he was traveling through the American South. He had just completed one of his first commissions, which was photographing the CEOs 
of all the various divisions of the Heinz company, the company that makes ketchup. He flew all over the world. They flew him to Ireland, Venezuela, Italy, Britain, Australia, Belgium, making portraits that were in keeping with these images of farmers, but they were nothing like the typical CEO portrait. Tom Wolf, I guess Tom Wolf had written Bonfire of the Vanities, Corporate America, and uh, they they referred to themselves and he referred to them as masters of the universe. So you can imagine these people in marble palaces, sitting in boardrooms, and Rodney's pictures were human and intimate. They were naturalistic and beautifully composed. And the prints themselves had this huge range of blacks, so they were just stunning, usually. Uh, and the annual report that he had just finished for Heinz won every award. It was it was just so unusual for the kind of work that was being done at the time. And I, like a lot of other creative directors, we were interested in bringing artists into our own work. We were interested in breaking the mold. It was uh, the 80s were a wonderful decade. It was a time of big budgets um, and clients who were willing to think differently. It was very rich, literally and creatively. Uh, so I was really excited to bring him into my projects and hire him for, for portraits so that they would have the same kind of natural quality that, that I had seen in these other corporate portraits. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? You can see there's a discernible. Um, so just to sort of give an insight into the structure of the book, you get the sort of long essay by Paul Martineau at the start, uh, sort of details Rodney's life and the themes and the kind of enduring themes of his work. And then you get the plates of some of his most famous um, pieces before a couple of extra essays, one on the the kind of process, the real photographic process by... Yeah, Rebecca Sam. And then obviously a short um, piece by yourself. But you you can see within the book, you can see that turn in in the, in sort of in his career when he started working with you and with the agency. And that's why I wanted to start with with you really, Leslie, because it's... This book is it's about Rodney, of course, but it's about you and it's about both of you. Very much about how um, Rodney's career took this sort of trajectory uh, that 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 ultimately became, I suspect, lucrative, but also it retained his his, his artistic uh, integrity, if you will. It's interesting you say that because there's often a debate um, I've had recently whether photographers who work on assignment is the work different than what they do for themselves? And for some people it is. Uh, Dennis Friedman was having a conversation with Paul Martineau and others, and that was his premise coming into our talk. Um, but in fact, Rodney always took his own pictures, uh, regardless of the assignment. He would say to me, my allegiance is to the photograph, not to you. And often, when I'd send him off on assignment and ask him to do something, he'd do the exact opposite. And then when I saw the photographs, he was totally right. I mean, that was the image. Um, and uh, unlike most people, he just, for him, making the photographs was uh, almost instinctual. He, he dug down into a very deep place within himself and he would feel the photograph, not see the photograph. 
And so that was that was totally different. So what kind of person did you meet when you met Rodney? And what kind of person did he not become so much, but how how did your relationship sort of shape? There was just something about him that gave me new energy. That was who he was. He was very psychological. He was very philosophical. I felt like here's someone who kind of understood me, um, not just as a business person, but as as a person. Let's just put it that way. So, um, so, and I, I think at this particular moment, I was looking for a place outside of the city to kind of get a, to have a different life, right? To take a break from being nonstop, from working nonstop for, you know, 10 years um, and building my own reputation. Um, but so when I met him, all of a sudden I got this new energy to, um, take on some new projects. And one of those was the hat book. So his his photographs, again, were a lot of farmers, a lot of workers, most of them had hats as part of their jobs. He liked hats, he felt they completed the figure, the silhouette. And right around the same time, I met a man who owned the Bowman Hat Company in Adamstown, Pennsylvania. He toured me through his factory, which made hats the same way they'd made them since the 18th century. And there were large black machines, almost looking like printing presses, which were dramatically lit by this floor to ceiling, mullioned windows, combing raw black wool by passing it over these huge steel drums. Um, there were clouds of steam everywhere in this, in this place, which was used to shape wool. And it just looked like one of Rodney's photographs. I mean, it had this timeless quality to it. And it was also the antithesis of the hat as an object of fashion, which fascinated me. I asked Roddy if he would be interested in making a, a book, a self-generated book about this experience of wearing hats and that hats could be both disguise or something to hide you or call attention to yourself. And uh, he said, yes, right away. And now th this I learned later was a guy who said no to everything. No was his favorite <laughs> word. Take that picture? No. You know, uh, do you want to shoot color? No. You know, do you want to try digital? No. Um, but he, he said yes. And uh, we invited a range of authors to join us in writing essays about hats. And we, we created what we often refer to as the smallest coffee table book. It's only about six by six inches, so it always ends up at the top of your pile. You know, hats do complete the figure. It, it dresses people up. It adds distinction. It finishes an outfit. And at the same time, it makes people timeless. It makes every singular man and every man. And by obscuring heads and faces, the pictures inadvertently become more and more surreal. And this was something that he discovered. It wasn't intentional. Um, or intellectual, but he was just like playing with this iconic image of the hat. It just seems so simple. It's so far away from from Rodney in a way. The real kind of grittiness, you know. The um, oh, he was he was interested in the working man, wasn't he? To an extent, he was interested in the he kind was. of everyman. Uh, that's clear. But this the kind of grittiness of it, the kind of like you said, uh, the kind of hellishness of it. At this sort of point in his in his career. He who he'd been interested in hats, he'd been interested in the kind of how people how people dress. Um, and he would be very interested in that later in life. But 
how it's this kind of self-aware self-awareness that hadn't really been in his in his early work it was this very consciousness of his own process if a photographer can ever be it was a very kind of self-referential picture I thought Mm -hmm. the arc that his career went on after that where it did become very kind of you know very knowing didn't it to an extent so far away from what might have defined his work but it's so self-consciously is um, yeah his own work well you know so it's interesting he and the book talks about this great deal was that he um was born in new york city to um um his parents his father was in the fashion business he actually invented the first fake fur coat called borgana which everybody wore and then he went on to found with several partners Anne klein and pierre cardin and they became very wealthy uh, when Roddy was pretty young. And um, he thought his parents were incredibly superficial. He thought that they were only concerned with surface, not substance. When Roddy's father got very wealthy, his mother also got ill and she basically disappeared from his life. She went to her bedroom, she didn't come out for a year. And then in order to appease her, his father basically took her on these cruises around the world and jetting off to the pyramids in Egypt. This is the 50s, you know, this is a long time ago. And they basically left Roddy home. He's trying to really find his own self of sense self-worth. And so he's looking to people he thinks are underprivileged, you know, who have hard lives. Um, and he's finding nobility in these people, much more nobility than he finds in his own parents. And so he, you know, he goes on these pilgrimages basically to find these people and look into their eyes. He's got his small handheld Leica um, and he's, you know, asking permission to get into a relationship with them. And he said when he was scared of getting close, he'd get closer. (laughs) Now, what happened in the meantime, unfortunately, is that his father passes away suddenly while Roddy's in graduate school. So here's this man who's larger than life father, who's totally controlling, you know, and you're constantly in this relationship with this great man to prove who you are. And he does it by taking himself out of the, out of the succession of moving into the family business. And then his father dies at 57. And so, you know, this really throws him into a tailspin. Um, how much do you think then, um, I don't say defined, but how important was that relationship Rodney had or didn't have with his parents to his ultimately artistic career? Despite the fact that he rejected them, they had a huge influence on him. So his parents were all about aesthetics and how things looked. Uh, that his mother wanted him to, you know, almost look like he'd gone to Eton. And so she picked a school, um, Avon Old Farms, which looked like it was right out of Harry Potter. At home, everything was in its place. Everything was polished. He grew up with this grand house where there's an army of people who worked every day to keep everything perfectly maintained, including Rodney himself. He was always dressed perfectly for every event. So this sense of order, which 
he he rebelled against his parents, but the sense of order that they gave him as a child was so baked into him. Really, so much part of his DNA, that's what you see in the photographs, that impeccable aesthetic, this sense of composition, everything in the right place, um, the sense of styling. I find that so interesting. I find that so interesting. Oh, it seemed like to have this very particular view of, of the world, but to be able to sort of engineer it into a kind of way of representing a sort of timelessness in those photos. Um, and because of the hats, the hats are very symbolic. They represent, mm-hmm. they're kind of like something you'd see in Magritte, which we sort of said. Um, there's something that you would see in the kind of fashion of, you know, the 50s or 40s. But what they kind of do as well is they they depersonalize his subjects uh, to an extent. They can hide the gaze. They can sort of manipulate the gaze of of one of his subjects. And the, I can see the picture behind you, um, which is a fine example of you know the the eyes are being cut off. And when you do that, a person becomes very very different. It's like when you see um, when they're trying to anonymize a person, the, the thing that they get rid of uh, is is. Is the the eyes. eyes. So yeah, That's yeah. Right. No, he would often say the eyes are the window to the soul. And when he first started photographing those early portraits, which are so intense, is all about the eyes. It's exactly as you said. Mm-hmm. And then when he started moving into this world where he was commissioned, he couldn't pick his subjects, right? So that got a little more challenging for him. Um, he always felt he understood people by looking at them through his lens. And the people he picked were people of enormous strength and endurance. And then all of a sudden he's starting to shoot fashion. And here are these beautiful young people who were not typical. So the challenge was, how, what's he going to do with that, right? It's, and there's an interesting story. I think this is a real turning point for him. Um, one fateful day in 1993, he was shooting a picture of a German model named Annika for New York Magazine. And um, he typically liked his models and he often picked them, but this girl he did not pick. She was cold, you know, and she didn't connect with him. And yet when he developed the film, he discovered there wasn't one bad picture of her. Now, this was a shock. The camera loved her, but he thought so much that it was really his relationship with the subject. So from that on, that point on, I think his pictures became less about the individual and more about the story. And this was particularly true with the men, his male models. The story started to become whimsical and humorous. And so the images were compelling, but in a very different way than his earlier work. Do you think that that sort of said to to Rodney about the experience of photography, but but also perhaps the experience of of life when he didn't have this, or he didn't think that he had this connection with her, but it produced some of his sort of finest work. I think that he realized that he had a lot more in his toolkit, let's say, than just the key to all of his pictures was location. So He would hunt and hunt for locations or he'd have location scouts. And when he found a location, what's interesting is he wouldn't stay and explore it. He'd run away because he didn't want to ruin the experience of discovering it the moment he was going to take the photograph. Because for him, 
this ability to be spontaneous is what got him really excited. And he also knew that, you know, if he scouted on one day and he found this fabulous location, the day he showed up, it could be raining or the light was coming from a different direction or the wind was blowing. So he had to be spontaneous in his ability to play in the moment and engage his team, um, his expertly trained team to pivot, you know, and shift when he did based on what he discovered at that second. But he definitely knew um, instinctually where he could make good pictures. So I think that that instance with Annika was one of those. It's a beautiful allay of trees and there's the symmetry and the tonality of the leaves on the ground and the trees and her dress and this bicycle. I mean, it's a stunning picture and she is gorgeous. People are very attracted to it because she's very attractive as is the whole composition. And I, I think that that, you know, that was a big eye opener for him is um, I can make pictures that are compelling and sometimes funny and I don't have to be in love with this person. Hi there. Thanks again for joining me for today's episode. I do hope you're enjoying it. And if you are enjoying it, why not leave a five star review on your favorite podcast provider? Over the years on the Ripland pages, we've had emerging and award-winning writers. And you can help these writers reach new readers by leaving a five-star review on your favorite podcast provider. No, it's just great to have you here, so thanks. And I hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode. One can only imagine sort of what was sort of going... What would it be like to be inside the mind and sort of body of Rodney when he's on a shoot? There's so many kind of things... Because it seems there's such a an element that needs to be controlled you know the 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 result that he wants and there's a there's a there's a yeah there's a mastery isn't there of or it seems like there's a mastery of of the subject but there's also this sense of there's a lot of variables that he doesn't kind of not only not know about because that's the way it goes isn't it but also that he doesn't want to know about maybe so he wore the same pants the same Brooks Brothers shirt, the same shoes for, you know, 50 years. I can't believe and, that. I can't believe um, that. For, for a fashion to- photographer, I can't believe exactly. that. Exactly. He practiced his craft over and over and over again. And he was um, a student of Ansel Adams' technique, the zone system. Not so much the photographs themselves, but the way to expose and develop film so that it would be perfect. And so his negatives, he he wanted to make the world sharper and clearer. Then when he got on location to shoot, it was pure instinct. It was just, he would let go and he would be in the moment and he would just experience the photographs. So I'd look at one of the pictures. There's, There's one in the book where there's a row of trees. You see that the reflecting the reflectors that have been painted on the rows of trees in France line up exactly with the highlights in the field. And it is, you know, as an art director, I'm always doing this consciously, you know, can you have this line and this angle line up with that, that diagonal, et cetera. So I said to him, you know, did you know that you lined up this line on this tree with this line in the field? And he said, oh, no, no. That's, that's where I felt peaceful. And so for him, it was the place. Now, if you'd met him, what was fascinating about him was that he was a nervous wreck every day. I mean, he was a hypochondriac. Um, 
the first time they met him, he told me he was dying. That was that was literally, hello, I'm dying. Right. Um, yeah, if you look at these pictures, which are calm and serene and composed and beautiful, and you think, oh, the person who took these photographs must be must be a very suave guy. And um, he was he was a, a fabulous, funny guy, but um, he, he, again, his nervousness took over, but not when he was taking photographs. So when he was photographing, he transformed. Because, well, there was some, we spoke a little bit about his parents and yeah, his, his father, when, when he came into money and his mother became, she got breast cancer, didn't she? She did, um, yeah. Yeah. And the way that they sort of responded to that was to sort of have these big trips around the world, uh, as you said, mm-hmm. and it was the fifties, which is not really the thing that I guess people did then. Um, right. And he was left alone quite a lot and he was left with his right but it wasn't it wasn't his parents that introduced him to photography was it it was it was it was martin um he had this couple that were at the house martin and fritzy and um they became almost surrogate parents for him when they left on their day off he went with them and so martin was a amateur photographer and he set up a dark room in the bathroom and while he you know was in there and he taught him about photography so that was his first introduction to um, photography. And then when he was a sophomore in college, he went to the Museum of Modern Art and he saw this exhibit, um, Margaret Burke White um, and Stieglitz and these pictures and they were so powerful. And again, his father, he had a fight with his father, the same, the same trip. And you know, his father came down on him very hard and he couldn't say anything. He, you know, he wasn't allowed to respond, but he felt like photography was a way he could scream at the top of his lungs and say what he wanted and his father would have nothing to do with it. So that was, that was the moment. And he just decided, I can do this. I can be a photographer. And, and him as the subject, he said, therapy saved his life. You know, he really had to come to terms with all these feelings he had about his parents and his his feelings that they thought he would be worthless without them, that he would amount to nothing. And uh, again, not having them around to, to show, um, it took a lot of courage on his part to keep going, you know, and channel that sadness and that melancholy into pictures of such joy and exuberance. Yeah, it's um, it's it's it's, it's obviously it's sad to hear someone's distress or difficulty, but it's also a you know uplifting some way that that there was something that he found and that people can find. You know, anyone can find to an extent. Mm-hmm. Can I was it a way to? And I'm thinking about those early pictures. So his early pictures mm-hmm. took him out to uh, Israel and the Deep South, and sort of a kind of there was a bit more of a rovingness, wasn't there? There's a bit more kind of sort of street photography element, a naturalistic element to them. You know, it's like I said, influenced by Walker Evans and Katia Bresson in there. And, and there is that desire to connect with with people. Do you think those, those do you think that was a way of, of Rodney sort of discovering how to connect with people? Not necessarily, not necessarily trying to connect, but how to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Did it give him a language to connect with people? He was really good at connecting with people. If he met you, um, you know, he, he would already have been talking to you about your mother and father and your relationship with them and with your siblings and where did you grow up and 
he, he kind of had his own talk show. He was so interested in other people. And I think he was always taking notes and comparing himself to them. He was trying to understand himself. And he did that through trying to understand other people. Um, and if people were in pain, you know, psychological pain, he was so sympathetic uh, for his students. People came to study with him. His workshops were like phototherapy. People were often crying. Um, and he'd say, you know, these pictures are good. They're good. They're like 80%, but you're a fabulous person. You can get 99% out of this. And, you know, but you got to go deeper. What is it that you need to say about the world? What is it that, you know, what, what, not traumas necessarily, but what challenges have you had that you need to show the rest of the world to help the rest of the world understand what it means to be human. So he, this was a constant search for him. And um, I think it's interesting he studied theology because that, that was what he wanted. Those were the questions he wanted to know. That's what motivated him. And photography was, was his way of expressing it. And all these people, all these subjects are in places that they seem to obviously fit because it's been constructed. But mm -hmm. there's also a sense of, you know, via the poses that he makes them do, via the clothes that they wear, via the, the, the surroundings that they're in, they always seemed like people in a place that always seem to be asking, what am I doing here? And for me, that was that's a very theological mm -hmm. question. Why am I here? Mm -hmm. Why am I on this earth? what's put them here why are they in this place and i thought it was a question that really sort of tied into this theological question of rodney's life mm -hmm. he liked the fact that pictures ask more questions than answer them so if you're yeah. saying why is this person here what are they doing are they about to jump are they happy or are they sad he would love that because he'd say you know if a picture answers every question there's no point looking at it more than once but it's those pictures that make you come back to them over and over again, um, which is really a hallmark of his work. Even, you know, the picture behind me of that woman with the hat. I, I have looked at his pictures now every day for 30 years, and I never get tired of them. You know, it says, you said, what's she doing there? Why is she in the middle of the hedge? How could she even fit between that hedge? And what's her face look like? under that hat how did she get in there how did she get out of there you know what i find fascinating now and paul martino has really started to do this for me is the pictures were taken with a certain purpose let's say or intent or moment and now they're starting to take on a life of their own so he talks about three men with shears there's these three men in a field which have bowler hats on and they're holding these large shears it was originally taken for a ad campaign for a champagne company. It's, it's again, one of those images that teeters between funny and ominous. And Paul talks about the fact that, you know, what are these men doing? Are they even men? Are they automatons? And why are those shears so big? And, you know, are they coming for me? You know, and um, so many of the pictures do that where you get to bring your own personal interpretation to what what do you see in the work and what does it bring out in you yeah i mean you, you mentioned the ex exhibition at the edward hopper gallery but edward i mean edward hopper was very good at 
good at that. It is. They they had a lot in common. I think it's the everyman quality. You know, the people are kind of anonymous. They're specific, but could be any man. There's always this quality of light. There's kind of a window light. There's a narrative, and the people are are they sad? They melancholy. They're alone. They're with people, but they still feel alone. So, um, yeah, I think there are a lot of parallels. One person that came to mind, looking through these photos, uh, perhaps I don't say more so than anybody that definitely came to mind, and I thought was sort of visually referenced, either consciously or not, was was Cary Grant. It's there's a couple of images where they look like they could have been sort of taken out of of, of a Hitchcock film, you know, North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like, for me, a visual reference to a kind of era that that Rodney seemed to sort of really um, take pleasure from, that kind of smartly dressed man, the kind of 50s, but also that very um, alienating experience of of why, again, why is this person in this situation? What are they running away from, even though they kind of know that they have to want to run away to survive? He has a number of photographs with planes in them, um... It's interesting you call it North by Northwest because that's what Roddy calls it as well. It just feels oh, wow. like that Hitchcock moment. He made it look easy. Um, some of that's because he didn't shoot digital. He was never tethered to a computer checking. He was, again, because he was so fluid, because he he and his group, they could just move. And if it wasn't working, they would move. And he could shoot an enormous amount of film in a day because it was... It's it's all a piece, right? It's all his sensibility, his sense of aesthetics, his sense of composition, his technical prowess, and then his ability to let go and have fun while he's making the pictures. So that that contradiction of even um, Graydon Carter writes about it, it's like still but motion, you know, and, and in many ways, I think he was one big contradiction, suave but anxious, you know, stillness but motion sad but happy. Um, that's what was so intriguing about the pictures, as was the man. I think this is, this is what its power is. It has such a, a, um, a physical language as photography that, that, that other art forms don't have. And that's what it feels like doing this. This has been... Roddy was somewhat reclusive. He wasn't out there self-promoting. So a lot of people know the pictures having seen them, but they don't know his name. Um, and every conversation we've been having um, with the curators and fans and people like you, Liam, which I love, it just allows everyone to deepen their appreciation and understanding of him. I wish everyone could have met him, and obviously that's not possible, but my personal goal is that people learn as much about him as possible, and they are intrigued by those photographs, they're captivated by them, and they want to know more. Ultimately, I think the look of his pictures and the content that once you know a Rodney Smith photograph, you can always spot it. Um, and that's that's a very hard thing to do. So we're continuing to have conversations, which is really exciting for me. Our next event will be a conversation between two master curators, Paul Martineau, who obviously wrote the book and has written 10 major books on photography, uh, particularly fashion photography as art. And he's in conversation with David Campany, who's a Brit, 
Um, on September 27th, they're going to be at the Fashion Institute in New York City. It's a free event. It's open to the public. And they'll be discussing what makes fashion photography art and Rodney's place in fashion photography history. Um, so that's, again, that's a Wednesday, the 27th of September. And the day after that, there will be a book signing at Staley Wise Gallery in New York City. Um, Staley Wise is in Soho. Um, they are really one of the premier galleries. They work with museums, private institution, and collectors worldwide to exhibit and represent the masters of fashion photography. So it's going to be really exciting. It's the first New York exhibit of his work. So um, we're thrilled. It's right. It's going to happen right as Fashion Week is being held in New York City. So all of those things are converging. I'm excited. Well, if you're in New York, <laughs> you wish you could be. You'd get yourself down on that. Rodney Smith, A Leap of Faith, curated by Paul Martineau, with an introduction by Graydon Carter, a long essay by Paul Martineau, uh, as well as an essay on the product of, of, of his photograph by Rebecca Sen, and then a small note at the end by uh, the lady that we're joined with today, his creative partner and widow, Leslie Smolin. And it's published by Getty uh, Editions. But for now, Leslie... Uh, thank you very much for joining me on the Rippling Pages podcast. Thank you, Liam. This has been wonderful, a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thanks once again to Leslie for joining me on the Rippling Pages. But of course, my biggest thanks to you for listening. I look forward to seeing you again next time. Mm-hmm.